This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hey guys, this is another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati. I'm John Damaris. And we're here today with the guy from Down Under, Eric Lathuris and his Gaunt Horde. Say hi, Eric. What's up, Dulles? Eric of the Grey Knight fame. Uh, he's that guy that won that big tournament in Australia with Grey Knights. You guys have all heard about, I'm sure, because he's always referenced as that guy who won with Grey Knights. So um, welcome, Eric. Nothing better for a clan to fame than winning with Grey Knights in 8th edition. Um, so, but we're not here. Uh, well, they would have they been a bigger clan to fame. <laughs> yeah. We're not here to talk about Grey Knights, though, unfortunately. We're here to talk about Tyranid. Um, Eric, you just went to the ETC with Team Australia and had a lot of success. Um, do you want to refresh us on what you brought? Yeah, man. Uh, so I had two battalions of Leviathan. Uh, so I had Old One Eye, a Broodlord, three units of Gaunts. Uh, they're all like 26, 27-man squads. Uh, four Venomthropes, two Biovores. I had a second battalion with two Neurothropes, four units of Gaunts. Um, then I had a Patriarch, which was Bladed Cog with a Familiar, a Bladed Cog Locus, uh, four Armed Emperor, Kelamorph and Sanctus, and then a 16-man Bladed Cog Hand Flamer unit, and a 108 reinforcement points. So Eric, you have a horde of Gaunts here. Um, what separates your horde from all the other hordes, like a horde of orcs or a horde of chaos or gene sealer cult or anything like that? Why do you think yours is superior? Uh, so I think there's, I think there's a lot more tricks within Tyranids and GSC than there are in like compared to orcs using it's pretty much just brute strength. Same with chaos. Uh, like there's movement gimmicks you can do with all of them, but the actual synergy with stratagems and psychic powers and rules needs and GSC do that a lot better than anyone else. Uh, there's also, can you give me like some specifics uh, on that? So like the horror with um, mass hypnosis or being able to use mind control, uh, all, all that sort of stuff. So just the powers are more synergistic and the strats you have are more synergistic than the other ones? Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, that leads me to a question. Then like, um, what is the overall game plan with your list? Like, how are you achieving victory with it? Because uh, it's not immediately obvious to me. Yep. Uh, so basically, it makes it forces people to commit to an attrition war. Uh, so if I if I deploy really defensively, so if I backline with all my gods, uh, and then spend my first couple of turns kind of just pushing out little tendrils of the units to the sides of the table. Uh, I very rarely ever just run straight out the middle. Uh, just because there's no, like, Termagorns don't have any sort of raw power, right? They're just, 
they're, they're just shields. They don't really they don't really do any damage. It's just all about board control. Uh, so that makes it when you can't kill handfuls or buckets of them early, uh, because you got either your shooting's not in range or you're not getting the most out of it. Uh, like it makes it really difficult to kill that many models later in the game. Uh, and that's when I start pushing on objectives and using my spells to make it harder again to start picking up models. So really you're just trying to board control your opponent into submission, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. And then, like, and then yeah, and then late game with all those characters, uh, there's actually there's like there's a lot of explosive damage because uh, you haven't burnt any CP early. You aren't really scared to dump like 10 CP or more in a turn. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, because there's nothing to spend strats on besides your characters, pretty much, right? Yeah, exactly. And then if the hand flamer bomb is going to be really valuable, like you can sink a lot of command points into that unit. Yeah, okay, of course. I, I, that does lead me to a question then. So, like, you're backlining your, your gaunts, and then the way I'm imagining this, you're going to uh, come out like, arms on an octopus, right? Like reach out with them reaching all the way to the back to like support characters. So what Yeah. What are your characters doing to support the gaunts or making them harder to kill or making them fearless? Like help me understand uh, what the advantages are to your horde. So synapse creatures make all the gaunts fearless. Uh, so that, that has a lot on demon hordes and stuff like that. Uh, I got venom throws making them minus one to hit. Uh, I'm also getting the six plus Fiona pain through Leviathan, which makes me a little bit more resilient to uh, small arms fire. Yeah, is that like an extra thirty guns? Six up Fiona pain. Yeah, when, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it, John. When you have hundred ninety of them. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, that's like another thirty guns, and then they're all minus one to hit, so that's another seventeen percent more guns. Yeah, it just adds up really over time. Yeah. Is what it is. Um, every six up adds up. Yeah, and then it gets even worse. When you've got two minus one to hit spells coming out. And you can stack those really well with the Venanthropes as well, right? Your Venanthropes, everything is octopusing, as we called it, back to yeah. the Venanthropes. So they'll have a minus one to hit aura. And then you have the Tyranid minus one to hit, which you can cast on like a Riptide or something like that. And then the Gene Stealer Cult minus one to hit, which again, you can cast to make two units less effective will make one unit really ineffective if they have one powerhouse yeah. unit. And basically, you're, you're kind of neutering them at that point. Yeah, pretty much. So like that... Uh, after that, you, you just can't kill. Like, shooting lists just can't kill enough. They can't. They just can't do it. Yeah. Are there, are there any shooting lists out there that you think can kill enough? Because I, I know, like, your traditional Tau Army simply just doesn't have enough bullets, as crazy as it sounds. Like, Tau are not good at killing multiple big units like this. Yeah, so Tau are probably the worst at trying to kill me. Uh, armies, like, uh, Death Watch, when they start hitting, like, 50 to 60 vets starts becoming just too many for me. Uh, but outside of that, uh, it, like excluding the new space room, um, there's, probably, there's probably not too many shooting lists that just put it down easily. What about like a guard army, right? With like a guard brigade with a ton of just guard squads, guard infantry squads, nine mortars, a wyvern, orders so everyone can first rank, second rank. Do you think that could possibly get through you quick enough? I know their minus one hit is going to suck because the Venomthropes, but you do have indirect fire, or they have indirect fire to kind of deal with that. Um, or if you don't have line of sight blocking, they'll just kill it with like a Lehman Russ. And then the Guardsmen will go to work on the Gaunts. Yeah, like it really depends on how much arty they have. If it, if it is just like your 
token nine mortars and one wyvern. It's not it's not actually enough to kill them. Like you'll take a couple of turns to kill them. And against guard, I'm not so scared to close the close the gap. Uh, I'd be trying to close it early because I I actually just win in combat just because the characters do so much heavy lifting because I'm just spending all the strats on them. Do you would you even beat like Catechins and Bulgrin in combat? Because you can make a pretty combat oriented guard army, especially with uh, the first rank or not the first rank, the the fixed bayonets order to fight twice. Basically, that's a lot of strength yeah. four coming your way. So you can drop you can drop the Bulgrin's heating power down pretty drastically with the spells, yeah. uh, and, and and even just tagging them on two separate ends of the unit. Um, <clears throat> so you can like limit their power. So could you explain what you mean by tagging them with two separate ends? That's some advanced combat theory, and I just want to make sure everyone's on the same page with that. So if you got ten or nine Bulgrins in a in a line with a bit of space in between them, there's a pretty big distance between the Bulgrin on each end of the unit. So if I have two different gaunt squads on each end of the Bulgrin unit, all the ones in the middle can't really separate to pile into fight. So I'm limiting how many guys can actually attack. And and even when they are attacking, they're hitting different squads. So you're not you're not putting a ridiculous amount of wounds onto one unit at once. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a really underrated tactic. Um, one thing that when you consolidate and pile in, you have to move each model individually towards the closest enemy model individually. So if you have four Bulgrin who have to move to the right to get to the Gaunt Squad who's tagging you on the right, and four Bulgrin on the left-hand side of your unit who have to move towards the Gaunt Squad tagging you on the left-hand side, you still have to maintain coherency when you pile in, so all those middle Bulgrin won't really be able to move. So you're only getting hit by like two Bulgrin on each side of the Gaunt Squad, and when you stack those spells, the Horror and Mass Hypnosis, they're hitting on like fours or fives. They're not killing many Gaunts at all. They're certainly not getting through 60 anytime soon, so that's a really good way to get through it. Yeah, and then when the Bulgrins are kind of tied up, then the Hand Flame unit becomes a big problem for Guardsmen. So, so your list actually sounds a lot, I would describe it as quicksand. And it's just a matter of how long it takes your opponent to figure out they're drowning. Because That's a really great point, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's really, uh, t- correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but the way I'm envisioning it is you're playing KG early and you're trying to set up situations where you neuter the ways they have to deal with the gaunts. And then you're just standing on all the objectives with a million objective secured bodies. So you just like score points at will. And they just can't. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, that is really clever. That's really gross. Um, I think those a lot of those tactics could be used with like grots or other things too. So I think that's really good information. I hadn't really considered that. I don't have to watch for that. Um, no, that's that's some excellent high level play there. I had a question about your list though. Um, taking a step back, what is the point of all those summoning points? Um, what do you use those for? Uh, yeah, so uh, <coughs> majority of the time, uh, it's used for bringing unit of gaunts back when they're dead. Just twenty more buys, but then at that point, why not just buy the more gaunts? Yeah, that's it. Uh, so that just helps. That just helps kind of keep the, uh, because you get through the reinforcement points, you get a lot of options. So if there be some games where I don't need that, so I might summon some GSC units or. Against stuff like Death Watch or your more elite sort of builds, because uh, you, usually I deploy so defensively, they feel more inclined to want to give me first turn. 
Uh, and it kind of stops me from just double moving on two objectives at the end of the game. But <clears throat> me going first allows me to use Spore Field uh, so I can set up a big unit of Spore Mines and I can I can push them into your face turn one. And if they finish their move within three, they, they explode on you in the charge phase and they do a bucket of mortal wounds. So I can kind of get rid of, I can start getting rid of your threats that are going to really hurt the Gaunts later on. And if you don't, if you lose that extra firepower so early, you're not going to be able to handle the carpet at turn four, turn four. Yeah, so I suppose, I know you had mentioned earlier, I can't remember if this is actually recorded, but we were talking about Death Watch uh, vets with Stormbolters are probably a nightmare for you if they have a lot of them. So just taking a unit of Stormbolters off the table is like 40 shots a turn for six turns before they even get to shoot. That's a lot of saved gaunts, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's it kind of tips the scales, uh, changes the margins because that Death Watch players built his list obviously counting for those forty Stormbolters just going into you for six turns, and when you take ten of them away, now it's substantially less. So yeah, over the course of the game, that adds up because you get rid of a turn one is my yeah. point. It just it's you're really getting rid of six phases. Yeah, of it. and because so many Death Watch players are running like three or four vet squads max. Um, when you take one away, their their ability to kill you drops off significantly. That's really clever. And it's not even one of those things you can really screen that well against. So I know some Death Watch players might take a scout squad or something because to fill their battalions or their Blood Angels allies or something. Um, but the, the Spore Mines are actually really quick with the Strat to move twice and the Fly keyword. Um, they move three, which is obviously not too impressive, and they run D6, which is average. Um, but they can do it twice with the strat. So on average, you're going about 13, 14 inches. And if you just, you can hop right over that scout screen. And if you do and get within three inches of Death Watch, you're bombing them all. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, I love it. <laughs> it's because you can, you can deploy them, what, within 12 inches? And then they have to detonate within three. So really, you only have to move them nine in most situations. Um, so that's not too bad because... You know, yeah, with I mean, considering you you move basically six plus two d six, it's not that bad yeah, at all. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you got a CP reel if you really need. Do you do you ever instead of summoning Gaunts or summoning the Spore Mines, do you ever summon anything out of the Gene Stealer Cult faction? Uh, yeah. So when I play against armies like Demons or like those real close combat heavy lists with minimal, if any, shooting, uh, I actually like to summon twenty Neophytes with two Webbers, two Heavy Stubbers. Because uh, they because they get summoned as bladed cog. Uh, if I'm taking the real to wound waller trait, uh, they they actually become pretty good at shooting at stuff like blood letters or plague bearers or or even orcs. But usually against orcs, you probably summon more hand flamers. So that that brings me to another question: When you summon hand flamers or anything like that, you can't obviously combine the summoning power with like strats like lying in wait or perfect ambush because it's after the fact is that you're summoning in the psychic phase. Yeah. So how do you get these hand flamers into range? Uh, so you summon them pretty defensively and they're more of a reactive unit. They're not a, they don't go and start a fight. Basically they kind of react to what the orc player is doing. So if the orc player gets aggressive, then the hand flamers come into play. They either go, they go into combat or they'll, they'll sit there and shoot you if they can get close enough. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, that orc player is going to charge Gaunts with boys. Like, I think they have to, right? So, 
they're probably going to come forward, I would think. I don't know, Nick, you'd know better than me, but it seems like they would. Well, actually, it's a great question. Um, Oryx, I don't want to get too deep into the matchup theory here because that's really what episode two is about. But Oryx could potentially just straight up outshoot you, especially with more DACA to bypass the um, the Venanthropes and your hit modifier spells. So what if like someone jumps 30 shooter boys right in your face, more DACAs, shoots twice, and just starts clearing guns with shooter boys? Like, do, Does that ever concern you? Because yeah. I imagine also in close combat, Oryx will pile right through the guns without a second thought. So, like, which front do you actually beat an orc army on? So they have to be really careful if they want to jump a shooter boy unit straight off the bat, because uh, I can disfect the the Mordaka, uh, and then after that, they actually become terrible at killing my gaunts. Uh, right. And then hitting can, on sixes is horrible. Feel, yeah, and you're going to feel less inclined to shoot twice when you're hitting on sixes. That makes a lot of sense. I, I use a very similar tactic when I play my Gene Stealer cult. Yeah, like, like command points are so valuable to an orc list. Like they're damage just amplifies through stratagems so if i'm taking away the more daca uh, i i wouldn't think they would still want to double shoot hitting on six and yeah i, I pretty much have never seen the north player double shoot through the vected more daca hey, even if they do it kills like what 10 gaunts who cares yeah it's not a it's not a big deal at all that's really interesting so what were there other units that you either played with or tested or considered for your list? Like, how did you come to the balance that you're at now? How did you come to 197 Gaunts? The world wants to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably wrote about 2,000 tiered list, something ridiculous, trying to figure out what what I really needed and then balance it with what I what I wanted. So what different – just give us some ideas. Like, what were you considering that you – straight away from and why uh so the, the one that i stewed on the most would have been the unit of homogons replacing one of the termigan units i was going to ask about that why no hormigons they, they're so utilityful they're actually moderately okay in combat and the six inch pylon and consolidate is amazing so mm. i'm really curious for this one so that they, they were they were awesome they were working um the problem is it's it's another 30 points out of the reinforcements um, which is kind of like another 60 points because if I have the unit of homogons, they're, they're obviously going to be targeted before termigants. Um, so I'm probably going to want to bring them back more of the time because they just contribute more. Uh, and then it was basically trading out reinforcement points for unit homogons and the ability to be able to put more GSC stuff on the table or be able to do things like spore field. Um, was was just too good to not have. Yeah, I can see that. Um, don't you think that if you deployed your Hormigons kind of as the last line um, in your armies, so like a whole bunch of Gaunts in front of the Hormigons, I've typically found when playing Horde armies, people always just shoot what the closest thing is because you got to get started somewhere. They will rarely extend effort to your back lines because that's obviously not having any immediate benefit towards them because your front lines are equally as close to them. And not only that, but of course you have less power to bear onto the back lines. So maybe that could have been a way to circumnavigate the fact that they die so early. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, so I, try, I did that a fair few times. Uh, it was, it was good, uh, but it's just the having over a hundred reinforcement points was was pretty much the sweet spot for all the things that I needed to being able to bring a gaunt squad back 
doing a big spore field because a little spore field is not really worth it. Uh, all you can use a little one for is screening things out. Uh, whereas the only time I wanted to use spore field was to nuke something. Uh, and then and then bringing in GSC units, having that over that 100-point threshold gives you gives you access to some decent units instead of just little annoying crap. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Another question oh. I had. Oh, sorry, John. Go ahead. I was going to say, it just sounds like those reinforcement points are actually very flexible for you. Uh, between GSC and Tyranids, you just have a lot of options with them. So you aren't willing to give up that flexibility for a little more uh, onboard power with uh, Hormagons? Is that what they're called? Right? Yeah, pretty much. So I, I played a fair few games without the reinforcement points. Or well, actually, that's a lie. I played one, played one game without them, and I threw the list in the bin. Really, it was that big a deal? Uh, yeah, for me, man, I, I did not like it at all. I mean, I can understand not liking the flexibility or not having the flexibility. Like when you want to summon spore mines and you can't because you just don't have the option. Or when you want to summon those flamers or anything like that. But in pretty much any scenario, when you want to just summon more gaunts that died early, it wouldn't it make sense to just buy those gaunts in the first place? Like, is there an actual advantage to having a wave come on later? Uh, yeah, I think there is. Uh, so you can you can kind of manipulate where they put where they where they play their game against you with a carpet of so many guys, um, and then when you can kind of when they when they kill a unit, being able to just kind of change where your board control is was pretty huge. So I can bring that gaunt unit on within six of the short table edge. That makes sense. So it's almost like you get a uh, flank out of it as well, or like even yeah. uh, a like a deep strike almost. Yeah. So it's like another big unit that can like still ties shooting units up that they have to kind of worry about where it's going to be. Whereas if I just have those models on the board, that that's where I am. They just know. Yeah. Right. And they, you can do it on any turn, right? So even if you lose a gaunt squad on say turn two, you could bring 30 gaunts back in on turn five, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can see a situation actually where you sort of use that ability to bring more gaunts on, but sort of null deploy them to like, just let me give you an example. Let's say they had like assault sense with a bunch of flamers, right? Those guys only move four. So, you know, maybe they come and they wipe a bunch of gaunts out and you're just like, fine, I'll put them back on the other side of the board, have fun coming over to get them. Um, it allows you to play a game where you sort of like blunt their ability to kill your guys uh, after you bring them back. Well, yeah, not just that. Like you can, you can, yeah, you can bait them into committing units to kill a squad of gaunts that you know that you're going to get back. So it's like a so an an easy example of that is a chopper boy unit jumping turn one uh, and screening out with the front unit of gaunts, letting them hit that unit and kill them, uh, and then you bring them back and 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 kill the, the boy unit with, with the rest of your army so that you've kind of taken an orc boy unit off them for, for pretty much no gain. Same thing if people do that with centurions and stuff like that. It opens them up to getting the neg one to hit spells put on them or smites or, or a broodlord running in there, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, like, there's nothing you want to commit to on your side of the board, right? Like, you get to, you get to chew on guns. That's your... So you have to, and then 
you're peace trading with these gaunts that are tendrilled all the way back. Uh, so you're like, okay, you killed some gaunts, and now I'm going to either neuter you so you can't do anything further or, you know, take a chunk out of you if I can. Like, I think that's... Is that pretty normal for most hard armies, Nick, I guess? I'm sorry, what'd you ask, John? I'm just asking, like, so it seems like because of the way his army is constructed, he's sort of forcing his opponents to commit to chewing on gaunts, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, so basically he's... If I'm getting this right, Eric, please feel free to correct me if I'm not. He's basically forcing people to overcommit to problems. So, like, if someone's trading 30 orcs for 30 gaunts, that's... Points-wise, which is not a great metric, an inequivalent trade because it's like give or take 200 for give or take 120. And on top of that, those orcs are worth more because the, the guy's only got 90 or so orcs. So once those boys go down and he's left with 18 smasher guns, those smasher guns are dead weight in this. So you're, you're overstressing your opponent's ability to... You're overstressing his anti-horde capabilities. So in a classic orc list, 18 smasher guns, a shock attack gun, and 90 grots, or 90 boys, the only thing that matters to Eric are those 90 boys. The 18 smashes, the shock attack gun, none of that does anything. That's 600 points a turn to kill 20 gaunts. That's horrible trade value. So every time 30 orcs goes down, if they didn't bring, let's say, 70, 80, 90 gaunts with them, they traded down. So forget the points aspect to it. It's those orcs have to overperform because of the style list Eric has brought. So the fact that they're trading down just naturally one orc boy for one gun squad, horrible trade value. It's also Eric can win the game with 500 points left if it's 500 points of gaunts versus 800 points of smash guns and shock attack guns because it, it's just not get ever going to get there it's a total mismatch at that point so eric's just trying to create those kinds of situations was does that sound right eric yeah 100 percent, man and then he just ends up the, the final turns of the game with more objective secured bodies so yeah he- so i mean even if eric loses 150 out of 200 gaunts or, or like 150 out of 220 because the reinforcement points um in the first two turns if he takes all of his opponent's anti-horde power and kills it in response to killing the hundred first hundred fifty guys. The remaining seventy and gaunts walk around the table with no answer. The opponent can't do anything about it, and that's kind of the end of the game, essentially. Yeah, pretty much, man. Uh, it's just yeah, just forcing people to play an attrition based game against me. You can't kill quick enough. Yeah, it's a really good strategy. Um, one that you know most players don't opt for because playing two hundred twenty guys is miserable. But <laughs> over in Australia. When you compare it to the alternatives of dying to scorpions and whatnot, it's probably pleasant. <laughs> um, I did have another question, though. Obviously, we've covered the strengths of Levian. You have six up in pain across 220 bodies. That's, on average, give or take, 40 more past saves. That's 40 more gaunt bodies your opponent has to chew through. Yep. Were there any other high fleets you considered? Kraken for the double moves and the, the double advancing and the fallback and charge is really strong for Hordes, I imagine. Someone can't just drive a Rhino into a Gaunt squad and say, you, you're useless for the rest of the game. Um, maybe Jormagander because that your whole army just gets a cover save for standing in the open. There's just not enough terrain on a table to potentially get 220 bodies into cover. So this way you just have a cover save. Any of that cross your mind? Yeah, so Kraken, definitely. Uh there's a lot of games against, especially things like Guard or like anyone with little random vehicles like Sentinels or little stray rhinos. 
you find yourself wrapping them a lot with gaunts. Uh, and if you sometimes you're trying to stick like four or five units of gaunts in combat with this one one vehicle, so they just can't shoot you. Uh, when you start doing that, you kind of start blocking out where your characters can get into. So having something like Kraken to be able to fall back and charge and do whatever you want is uh, is incredible. Uh, but I found the amount of times I would use that compared to being just really cagey and taking my six off Fiona Pain, the Fiona Pain just, just won for me. Yeah, I'm actually trying to imagine a situation where feel no pain is better because you have about as many wounds as you stick in a list, right? Like you have just a million wounds. So that's a lot. If people are going to table you or kill your stuff, like that's a lot of feel no pain rolls you're going to get. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, yeah. I, I thought it was, I thought it was the best choice. Uh, it's also, uh, for the for the venom throbs, man. Uh, so things shooting indirect at venom throbs when they ever feel no pain. If they if they roll a couple of extra, like if they have a couple of good rolls, uh, you go from killing them on turn two to killing them turn three or turn four, which which is huge. That that's pretty much too late for it to matter. You've put all this firepower into venom throbs and you haven't put them down. So any anything that helps that happen is is too beneficial to me to pass up. Yeah. And uh, I know um, you're on the Venanthropes because I guess this was your ETC list and ETC lists don't allow Forge World. If you were playing in an ITC or a Nova or any of those other formats that do allow Forge World, would that become a Malanthrope or is there some secret sauce to the Venanthropes? So obviously the Malanthrope is really good uh, if you are going to get on tables where you actually can't hide anything, which is probably something you shouldn't see too much of in 8th ed. Uh, then the Malanthropes better, but I actually like the Venomthropes because because you can shoot at them. Uh, if people have the ability, because to you can them. shoot at them, you want this unit to not die, but you want your opponent to shoot at it. Yeah. This is some Australian logic, but let's yeah. see what you got. So if you have, so if you're playing guard, you have nine mortars, or you have nine mortars and a wyvern, whatever. Uh, if you can't shoot the Malanthrope, you're just going to be putting those shots into Gaunt. Uh, if you can shoot at the unit that's giving my army minus one to hit, you're probably going to feel inclined to shoot at it because you think you need to get rid of it. Uh, the amount of time it actually takes you to kill that unit with all these mortars and a wyvern, especially if I decide to put something like Catalyst on them, is actually just going to take you way too long. Like, sure, you might kill them by turn three, like maybe, uh, but by then you've missed out on three turns of all this artillery going into Gaunts and I, I've closed the gap by then. So by the time you kill the Venom Thrips, I I don't need them anymore. So you've wasted... You've, you've wasted. So you would actually say it's a mistake to shoot the Venom yeah, Thrips? Yeah, unless you have the right artillery to kill them really quickly, you, you know, you're making a bad choice. Now, like, what is the the breakpoint for artillery to kill them as quickly? Would it be like a whirlwind Scorpius and some thunderfires from Space Marines? Are we talking like three plus basilisks? Like, what are we thinking here? Yeah, so mar- Marines do it a bit better because of the BS three. But for guard, uh, like I've played games against five basilisks and, and two or three wyverns, and it takes them more than a turn to kill them. Mostly because I'm not scared to vect. Uh, What's the overlapping fields of fire? Like, I'll vect that. 
Oh, so so against guard, like you know, they shoot the wyvern or they shoot the mortars first, and they try to give themselves plus one hit, and you'll just straight up vect it. Yep, hundred percent. I'll force them to have to commit more firepower into that unit. It, it's not just that they're shooting venom drops; they're not shooting gaunts. Um, it's the, the venom drops are also toughness four, not toughness three. So everything's winning on fours. They're probably in cover if they're out of line of sight. So they have a four up save. They have five save base. So they have a four up save in cover. Um, as opposed to the gaunt six up save, and then you have to kill every single venom throw up to see any value out of it. Like, y if you kill, it's a four man unit. So if you kill eleven wounds out of venom throw ups, it's equally as effective as if it was a four man. It's like you had done nothing. If you put those same eleven venom throw up wounds and translate it into gaunt wounds, you probably get about twenty gaunt wounds, and you didn't kill any units. But twenty gaunts, you got to get started yeah, exactly. somewhere. It's twenty gaunts. That, that's, worth, that's worth a lot more to you as a guard player. Than that's pretty interesting. Trying to kill this unit and giving the neg one to hit. Yeah. So basically, would you say it's worth it to try to kill the Venomthropes if you can reliably two-shot it? Like, by turn two, it's dead? Or is it only if you can kill it turn one? If you're going first, if you can reliably kill it on turn two and you're going first, then, yeah, it's probably worth it. If you're going second, uh, turn two's too late. Interesting. So that's kind of the break point. Because I'm like over halfway or at halfway on turn one, and then turn two, I'm, I'm like I'm in there. So Gotcha. If you're not going to get at least one turn of shooting at my gaunts before the Venom Thropes are dead, then this, you're wasting your time. So um, one of the last things I want to cover before we kind of scooch on to the next topic is – you're, we've talked about your strategy overall, how it's to swarm the board and just overwhelm your opponent's ability to kill you, win the attrition or that kind of thing. Do you ever actually find that you kill your opponent or is it just you kill enough to get by and then just start existing there? Uh, so yeah, there, there is games where you, I do just end up killing them pretty quickly. Uh, and a lot of like all of that's through just the explosive damage through old one eye and brood lords and the hand flamer bomb. Patriarch, like you can do a lot of damage really quickly. And if you're killing key units on those turns, uh, then, then they just that like they just can't fight you back and you just keep going. Spe especially something like old one eye. If he can get into something, kill it, keep himself protected and keep going, he, he causes big problems. Well, let's get into that. How do you kill something? Because old one eye is a character, right? And he's like a yeah. he's a beat stick. Um, and so you apply him to something. But presumably you're pretty, pretty far forward at that point. Like even if you can screen with your your gaunts, like he's probably in a pretty vulnerable position. So how do you, how do you protect him? So you can do things like double move gaunts in the movement phase. They can't charge or anything after that. But you can you can kind of create like a big wall around something you're trying to kill with old one eye, or like using the fight twice stratagem to get extra pile-ins. Stuff like that after old one has already killed the unity's fighting. Uh, but the, the biggest one is using the overrun stratagem. Uh, so hitting something you know you're going to kill with old one eye, uh, using one command point to rear all wounds, you really think you need it, uh, and then overrun straight back out of that combat and running backwards in behind all the gaunts again. I think that's actually my favorite Tyranid stratagem. And when I used to play Tyranids, it was definitely my most used one. Um, can you just like in depth go into like how to apply the overrun stratagem? Because a lot of people just think they just gloss over it at first. A lot of inexperienced Tyranid players do. Um, yeah. And I think it's one of the most important assets to the army. 
Alrighty, so Old One Eye's base is too big to fit through the coherency gap between gaunts. So you kind of got to have two units of gaunts meeting at certain points uh, where, where you can kind of move away from each other for a turn to let Old One Eye through. Uh, so he, he goes through that gap. Let's say hits a hits a knight. You've put a few smites on because you've got you got two smites and a scream. You're doing you can do that twice before you go in. Um, and then old one eye goes in. You probably use your claws against the knight, so he goes to strength twelve or whatever it is. Uh, he's got five attacks. He gets extra attacks on sixes, uh, which become fours because he's got two ways of plus two rules that give him plus one to hit. Uh, his claws are minus one, so he gets more attacks on fives. Uh, he's hitting on twos, wounding on threes, re-rolling, negative three, three damage. So when you've taken a few wounds off a knight with smite, you're pretty likely to kill it. Uh, when it dies or whatever you're fighting dies, for one command point, as long as old one is not within three of enemy units, uh, he can he can move and advance. So the idea is you're moving and advancing him back through that same gap you made for him with the gods. Yeah. So I guess what I was getting at is basically you don't have to use overrun to just go close to the enemy like you would a normal consolidation move. You can just use it to take a full move plus an advance in old one eyes case eight plus three or eight plus d six straight backwards and then get back behind your gaunt line to safety as Eric just demonstrated. It's a really powerful tool and kind of answers John's question from before. After you send old one eye out there to go kill a knight, how do you just keep him alive to go do it again? You just run him backwards. It's, uh, it's very clever. That does bring me up to another question. Uh, one of the things I'm confused about being a new player is how exactly the interaction works of um, pile in, consolidate, uh, you know, charges, heroic interventions, all that stuff. Like, is there a way for you to, say, charge with like a unit of guns and old one eye, uh, have old one eye kill the thing, and then have, is, is there a way for like the guns to, uh, pile in and consolidate in front of one old one eye, or is that not possible? Like, I, I don't understand exactly how all that works. Yeah, absolutely. This is actually something I teach all the time in my Knights Pro class over on uh, Knights the Game Table Pro. But to summarize what those teachings are, it's essentially when you, after you charge a unit, well, sorry, in the fight phase, there's two ways you can select a unit to fight. It has to be eligible. A unit is eligible if it's one, not fought already. And, or sorry, it's not fought already, and it's either successfully made a charge that preceding charge phase, or it's within one inch of the enemy. If it's successfully made a charge, it doesn't actually have to be within an inch of the enemy when it goes to activate. You just get to activate a unit because it's successfully charged. Vice versa, if you are using the alternative method for selecting a unit, being within one of the enemy, you obviously have to be within one of the enemy. So, in the situation you're describing, one of the cool top-level tactics every good player uses for the assault phase is they'll do exactly that. They'll charge Old One-Eye and a Gaunt Squad into a Knight or whatever have you and activate Old One-Eye first. And He's going to go and he's going to use Crushing Claws and he's going to kill the Knight. It's going to be fantastic. The Knight's going to die. And then Old One-Eyes may even overrun backwards or even just consolidate three inches forward like the chump he is. Now your Gaunt unit, which presumably also charged the knight in the preceding charge phase, 
is no longer with an inch of the night because old one eye took him to, to scrappy town and uh, the gaunts are no longer actually engaged with anything. They have still successfully made a charge this battle, this uh, preceding assault phase, so they may activate. Now, when a unit activates, it gets the full three-inch pylon, swing at whatever it's declared a charge against that's within one inch of it, and a three-inch consolidate. So what will happen in this scenario is they get to move three inches towards the nearest enemy. Presumably, that's in front of them. It may not be directly in front of them, like right in front of their face, but, you know, 20 inches away from them, in front of them, that'll be the closest. So they'll move three inches closer, swing at the air, because there's just nothing within one inch of them, and then consolidate three inches closer. So you've actually gotten six free inches of movement out of the gaunts to stand in front of Old One-Eye. And one of the things I teach separately from this is that 40K is essentially always, 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 forever and always won and lost in the movement phase. And the assault phase, more so the charge phase and the fight phase, um, are just extra opportunities to move your models. They're just, you know, you move 2d6, it's almost basically getting a free movement phase in the charge phase. And then when you go to you do your fight activation, you get six inches every time you activate, up to six inches. And then, as I just showed you, you don't have to be engaged with anything to get six inches. In fact, half the time you don't want to be engaged with something to get the free six inches, to get the six inches. And if you decide to fight again with a stratagem or some special rule, you'll get another potentially six inches. So you can get up to 12 inches of movement like that. But anyways, Eric's army is a premier demonstration of an army that simply wins by moving and existing. His killing power exists, as we discussed with the Flamers for Orcs and things like that, the Flamers for Guard, Old One-Eye for Knights, Broodlords for other kinds of stuff. Gaunts can even attempt to do something, I guess, sort of. But really, it's an army that wins and loses in the movement phase, and that's kind of the epitome of how to play competitive 40k, is just understanding the movement phase. That was my 30-second speed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so that's actually really cool. So, like, you have this, and it sounds like it probably takes a lot of practice to get this down, but your movement is probably pretty intricate, where a lot of people would see, like, 200 gone, so they sort of just shove them forward. But you're creating lanes for your characters to get places and then get swallowed by the horde again, right? With the consolidations and everything. So like they, the characters poke their heads out, smash something, and then like get swallowed by the horde again. So they're protected by the character rule. Am I getting that right? It's funny that you, you compared it to a, a quicksand before, but I think a more accurate description is actually more like a, the ocean. Like the waves come up at you, the gaunts charge, old one-eye charges, then the waves recede, old one-eye goes back into his hiding, the gaunts kind of just linger around being, making everything wet. But some of your whatever was on the beach is now just washed away. Like your army is being washed away every time it hits. If that makes sense, I don't know. I, was, I thought it was cool. That's a bit, yeah. That's a that's a good example. <laughs> that's right. Australians know they got a beach where they live. <laughs> your list actually sounds very interesting because um, if you make a mistake and lose one of your characters, your killing power is significantly neutered, right? Because you you kind of have this. Yeah. You have these um, waves, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so since since your killing power is tied to your characters, do you think that uh, sniper weapons, more so the effective ones in the game, not crappy dudes with snipers like Ratlings, but like now Space Marine Eliminators, um, potentially the shock attack gun with the Warlord trait to snipe characters, just those kinds of things in general, do you think that's a huge threat to your army or do you have ways to play around that? Uh, so there's definitely ways to play around things like the shock attack gun because it's got to be within that 18 you can pretty easily bubble out the drop zone with gaunts or even spore mines that the biovores shoot. Ah, uh, yeah. The spore mines 
um, can be launched, and every time a biovore misses, basically it becomes a spore mine, which is functionally a unit. It, it doesn't count. It doesn't give victory points or anything, but it exists. A model it takes up space. It's an enemy unit for your opponent, and therefore you can't deep strike within nine inches of it or anything. So it's a huge just bombshell, basically, of you can't come here. Yeah. Holy crap. So does that mean like you could use that to shoot? I don't know what the range is on that, but like kind of shoot in their backfield and then flood the flood field with Gaunts so that you zone yeah, out most of the uh, board? Absolutely. Yeah, the range is actually 48 inches, and they hit on fours naturally. So if you move, they'll hit on fives. So it's not likely that they'll hit. You can even you, you can move them purposely to attempt to miss or shoot a flyer or a unit of play bears or something. And you know you have your Gaunts... Give or take in the middle of the table, just being what Gaunts are. Then you have two spore mines, three spore mines hurled into his own, de- into your opponent's deployment zone. The only places your opponent's going to be able to really deep strike are like way back in his deployment zone, not even really in range to interact with your Gaunts or anything. So you really do screw over deep strikers really well. And and on top of that, uh, you can you can bring your GSC three inches away, right? So you can even take that space away from them. right so so you miss with your two spore mines they're gonna they're gonna occupy huge swaths of the enemy backfield and then you bring in like the flamers or you're like even a calamorph or something just three inches away and you could theoretically lock out an entire table yeah pretty pretty comfortably pretty comfortably oh that is gross yeah that's a I high would... level play there and that's something most people won't even think about because it's not an army that looks like it can do it the gaunts are just you know on their side of the table minding their own business my side table is all my stuff. Nothing bad's going to happen to me over here. All of a sudden, half of their army, or not half their army, 20 flamer guys and two spore mines are just in my deployment zone. All of a sudden, oh, wait, I can't show up. That's really clever. I would feel so bad if, like, it got to turn three and I realized that I had, like, because I play Grey Knight, sometimes I have a 1,000 points in reserves, literally have a 1,000 <laughs> points. And I'm just like, I cannot place these anywhere? <laughs> this is... <laughs> Terrible for me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a quick one-way ticket to Sadsville. That's how I'd feel bad, but I'd laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Oh, my God. Actually, why are there not more of those stupid things in your list then? Because I feel like zoning things out with those shots is probably a thing that probably works pretty well in a lot of circumstances, right? 100%. I would love to take nine, but games work so. <laughs> I would love to take nine. <laughs> So instead of spamming them out and really zoning out the world, because with nine, you could even like just move blocks yeah. off because that's like six four mines will get made. And yeah. that's, that's a lot of just space. So, um, but you know, 450 points versus a thousand or versus a hundred points kind of different. Oh man. So like in the night matchup, because a lot of times knights have to like walk between ruins or whatever you could like move block one, give the other one minus one to hit or stack minus two onto it. And suddenly two of their knights are not doing anything for a turn, right? Yeah. We're not doing a lot. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You can roadblock knights really easily. With the spore mine. Yeah. That's wow, what a cool. What a great tool. Gosh, you have like a lot of really cool little toolbox things. It's so interesting. Cause, cause yeah. like you said in the beginning, I asked like, um, what separates your horde from all the other hordes? And he kind of just said the strats and spells and gave a very generic answer. And now that we're actually digging deep into it, <laughs> figuring out what those strats and spells can synergize together and come up with, you're seeing that. You're seeing all the very, the intricate aspects to it, the combos. And I feel like the other sort of advantage that you have with this particular list is people aren't playing it. And so people are not 
they're going to make the wrong decision. They're going to shoot at the venom throws when they shouldn't have. They're accidentally going to get zoned out in a bad way. So they shouldn't have deep strike anything. They should have just started with everything on the table. Um, you're going to pick up a lot of, and with any combat army, unless you have an army that's like a hundred percent fly or something like that, yeah. you're pretty much always at risk of being wrapped. And then there's a hundred gaunts on objectives, which you can no longer shoot because the guns are just wrapped up on a scout squad or some crap like yeah. that. Obsecking all the objectives and being unshootable. It's like now you suddenly have to punch your way through the hundred gaunts because they're on every objective and you can't shoot them. And most armies just physically can't do that. So that's always a huge risk as well, which it's almost impossible not to fall for if you don't have the tools built into your list already. Yeah, and because they're all tendrilled out when they're wrapped in combat, making their pile-ins and stuff, it actually gets stupid because they pile in from all these random places. Yeah, so I guess that's another top-level thing. When, he, when we're saying making the tendrils, we're imagining like 30 gone spread across the entire table potentially because that's 90 inches of theoretical coherency on a 72-inch yep. table. Probably won't be that extreme in real life, but you get the idea. And the guys on the far right side can pile in just slightly towards whatever's the closest model. They could probably end up going sideways. And the guys on the far left could end up going like diagonally. And the guys in the middle obviously probably have to just keep coherency. But you could have your your unit in combat piling in, I'm putting closer in quote, air quotes right now, closer in like four different yeah. directions because it's model by model. That's right. It's pretty pretty cool yeah i kind of i kind of imagine like your army playing sort of like an octopus where like all these units of gaunts are just big lines that stretch out all across the board and there's just like this uh head where all your auras are to it to sort of attach to them yeah uh, I, I think we've decided that eric is actually just playing the water <laughs> like his army fights like the ocean and it deploys like an octopus like he's actually just an equation <laughs> Well, I don't know if you guys have seen Giant Squid Gaming, but uh, for any Aussies that watch this, show us your squid. <laughs> I like it. Awesome. So uh, unless you guys think there's anything more to cover from the strategic end, I, I'm really curious to get into some matchup theory. Yeah, me too. I want to, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of interesting tidbits. In the yeah, map. I'm sure how th this is one of those armies where like we can go through over the basic strategy over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, it's you put gaunts on the table and you use large units and large unit tricks it's it's how you actually go offensively or defensively which strategies do you use against which opponents i think that's the nitty-gritty to this list so i'm really excited to get into episode two yeah sounds good to me eric thanks for thanks for joining us on this week's uh, episode of art of war we super appreciate having you all the way from australia um yeah it, it was a far flight right to get on this podcast <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, we do this local. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Eric, thank, thank you for coming on, and I'm glad we can make the time zones work for everyone okay. Much appreciated. No worries. Thanks for having me. Eric, where can people find you? Like, uh, if they want to talk Grey Knights or, or Tyranids, or do you, do you produce content anywhere or anything like that? Like, how do people find Eric Lathurus? Uh, so I did. Uh, I was on as part of the Aussie Club Godhammer Gaming. Uh, and recently, I've uh, decided to partner up with Nick, help out the... Yay! Whoa, all right. <laughs> yeah, Eric's uh, the latest addition to the, the Knights Pro team right now. So Eric will be helping me out with some coaching stuff and uh, creating some content with me. And I'm uh, looking, for, looking forward to working with you and doing some collaborations. So you can check us both out at knightsthegametable.com under Knights the Game Table Pro. Um, we teach five weekly classes, one on General 40K, Imperium, Xenos, Eldari, and Chaos. 
do a live stream battle report for you every week um, where I don't just play the game like you would if you're watching a top table tournament match, but I also explain all the things I'm thinking, why I'm doing them, um, why I'm not doing what I could be doing. And uh, same thing for my opponent. What's going on in our brains? Try to give you the full picture. And then finally, I do a weekly meta Monday, which is uh, a meta analysis based on the past weekend's past tournament results, like the Nova Open, LGT. And uh, any new releases, like all the thousands of new Space Marine supplements we're seeing and the FAQ that may be released by the time this episode airs? Question mark. Um, so I basically break all that down for you and explain what that means for the meta, how you should change your armies, what direction the winds are blowing, and all that chat. So you can check that out at knightsthegametable.com. So anyways, guys, thank you for listening. This is the Art of War podcast, and we'll see you next time. Before you go, I did have one last thing to say. Uh, if you guys like this podcast, if you wanted to help us out just a little bit, if you left us a review on Facebook or on iTunes, or just told a friend about the podcast, I we would definitely appreciate it. So uh, we're on the Frontline Gaming Network. Very proud to be there uh, with a lot of other competitively focused uh, 40K podcasts. But yeah, if you could do any of those things for us, it's great. Uh, if not, no big deal. We'll still continue to put out this content because we enjoy it. So peace and love. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time. 